Okay, good evening, everyone. Thank you all, all of you on Zoom, all of you on Facebook for joining us uh, for our next segment of Building Towards a Better Tomorrow. So just by way of introduction, just to remind everyone what our goals were in starting this series as a community, to me at least, there were two goals. The first is that we are doing this during the three weeks and one of the themes, as we spoke about in Shul a couple of weeks ago, of uh, the three weeks, is the notion of looking out for the Yasom and Almana. The notion that Yerushalayim was destroyed due to the lack of justice, and the rebuilding of Yerushalayim will ultimately be reflected in the fact that there will be justice for the Yasom and Almana, which literally is the widow and the orphan, but really is representative of those that we sometimes ignore, and that we sometimes marginalize, and our goal as a community during this time was to focus on different segments of our community that are sometimes marginalized and not given enough focus. So one of the things we're going to be doing today is focusing on one of those populations. And specifically with this series, one of my personal goals was to introduce our community to people who are making a difference, people who are doers, people who are leaders, and hopefully we could be inspired by their actions. So tonight's topic is... The elderly. We'll be discussing the elderly. Uh, this, this past Shabbos, we spoke about the high death rate uh, that, took, that uh, impacted the elderly and how it was not, perhaps it is a, a more limited way of looking at it. If we think of it as a public, public health failure, I think in many respects it was a moral failure. The reason that the elderly were not given the right attention was due to our perspective of the elderly, and it really goes to our society's mentality. It's one that idolizes the youth, and in, at least in my opinion, seems to disregard and, and disrespect the elderly and not give them the cover, the honor and respect and appreciation that they deserve. So we'll, we'll have a chance to discuss a Jewish perspective on aging and what could be done with that population. It's a topic that's close to my heart, and I'm excited to discuss it. In addition, I'm perhaps, I think fair to say, I'm even more excited about our guest. Because tonight's guest is a role model of mine, and I know of countless others. Many, many people will visit our guest as they are about to assume a position of leadership uh, in their community. And I know many seasoned leaders who go check in and discuss things with this, our guest, uh, before undertaking any community venture because they want to receive that sage advice. So it's really, truly an honor and a pleasure to welcome to our program tonight the president of the Orthodox Union and a passionate leader of the Jewish community at large, Mr., I think more appropriately, Reb Meishbane. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure, Rabbi. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. Thank you. Um, so, you know, let's, let's, let's jump in. I really try to tackle both of those two goals, and maybe we'll th talk about you a little bit, if that's okay, and then we'll zoom into our topic. That was not a Zoom pun purposely. Okay, then we'll, we'll talk about our topic a little bit more. So, you know, you don't become the president of the Orthodox Union just because or out of the blue. Uh, clearly, uh, to, to lead such an organization, you have to have an incredible background in community work. So maybe if you could take us way back when, just to rewind just a little bit, just to help us understand the development and, and how a person comes to this place. If you could go all the way back, perhaps, to the very first time that you decided to roll your sleeves up and get involved in the Jewish community, to do something on your own. Well, well, well I would comment that most people who play roles in the community did not plan for their roles. Um, and life has a tendency to take people in directions that they really never anticipated. Um, I always used to tell my kids when they were growing up that 
every plan you have in life is not intended to be a absolute goal, but rather a direction you want to take. And we once there was an article written by a rabbi in Queens um, that was commenting that he observed that in his synagogue it was filled with older people who viewed themselves as failures, and he was very bewildered because he looked at them and viewed them each one of them as incredible heroes and successes. And he was struggling with what was the differential between how he viewed them and how they viewed themselves. And over the years, he began to discover what the difference was, that people be begin to look at their lives through the prism of what their initial goals were. And they set for themselves targets when they're young, when they're in school, when they're early married, when they're early adults. And then they look at themselves 30, 40, 50 years later, and they go, well, I didn't reach those goals. I didn't do it, so I'm a failure. And the rabbi writes, he goes, that's not really what life is about. Life is not about reaching your initial goals because uh, it's almost impossible to aspire to reach your actual initial goals because life has a way of getting in the way. Says what a Jew's role in life is to deal with whatever God sends his way. And when a person deviates from his initial goal because he confronts challenges and understands that those are the things that he needs to grapple with, then he's a success. You know, we gave him an example of someone in his shul who was intending to be a major Torah scholar. He was going to spend his entire day and night learning Torah, and his wife agreed. And then, lo and behold, his wife became ill after several years of marriage. And for the next 30 years, he had to spend enormous amounts of time taking care of his wife. He wasn't able to be, be a scholar to the degree he anticipated. Well, he may have not achieved that initial goal, but he was a hero. He did what God wanted him to do with his life, and he accomplished exactly what life was all about, which is to deal with the unanticipated, to deal with the curveballs that are sent your way. Having said all that, I did intend to do what I'm doing now when I was young, and uh, God, for some reason, took me through a journey that led me to exactly where I wanted to go, thank God, which was an opportunity to play a, a significant role in the community. Uh, you ask about the first time that I was a, an activist, it was uh, back in 1973. I was 13 years old, and I was in the Montreal, I grew up in Montreal, I was going to, I was studying at a, a school called the Hebrew Academy in Montreal, and the Yom Kippur War broke out. And I was very disturbed by the events that were transpiring and very anxious about it, and I did a couple of things during those several weeks. Uh, first thing I did was I arranged in my school and high school a period of Torah study on Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah is one of the days of the Sukkot holiday, and there's a tradition that's not all that widely observed to study Torah the entire night of Hoshana Rabbah. It's not like Shavuos, where there are many shuls that have programs. Hoshana Rabbah, very rarely, but there is such a concept. And I had the entire high school stay up the entire night of learning for Hoshana Rabbah and for the merit of the soldiers who were fighting in the Yom Kippur War. And then I set up a rotation of the school to go to the JCC in Montreal uh, to have outside of the JCC students sitting there with a lulav and esro, the entire sukkahs, to give people a chance to make a bracha. And then even the weirdest thing I did that week was the Federation in Montreal was doing a campaign for Israel bonds, and I volunteered to go around with elderly women to go collect the pledges that were being made around the city. So that's where I started. But one of the things I realized early on was that in order to play a significant role in the community, you needed to be educated and you needed to know a little more about Judaism in order to be in a position to make decisions that were valid and important and prioritized. So I, I left Montreal at a relatively early age of 14 and I went, came to Baltimore to where you all are and went to Nair Israel 
where I studied for many, many years. And uh, during that period, I was inculcated with the sense of commitment to the community. Um, I was part of a group of students, were actually eight of us, who were all students of Rav Yaakov Weinberg Zatzal, who was very, very focused on community involvement and contribution. His view of Judaism was a focus on the totality of the Jewish people as being our agenda. You know, very often one of the dangers of religion, and this is true in Orthodox Judaism, but it's also true of many religions, that a truly pious person is vulnerable to becoming subject to one of the greatest flaws of humanity, which is being self-centered. You know, we have a danger that by becoming very rigorously observant, you become so focused on your activities and your mitzvos and your learning Torah that you begin to lose focus on the broader goal, which is the totality of the Jewish people. And Rav Weinberg used to inculcate in us an understanding that our job as Jews is not only on our personal service, and clearly that's part of it, but also on elevating the entirety of the Jewish community. So our group of, of eight guys were very, very uh, committed to that principle. We were at the time 20 years old, and um, we decided that we as a collective group were going to be able to change American Judaism. We were going we to be revolutionaries, but we didn't know what to do. We were 20 years old. <laughs> so what we decided to do was to have a retreat. And one of the fellows in the group's parents were partners in a farm in Delaware, so we decided to go to Delaware for the weekend and brainstorm the future of American Judaism. And we had a problem because we were only eight guys and we wanted to have a minion for Shabbos. We didn't want to go away without having a minion. So we looked around and found two nice guys who weren't that cynical and weren't going to you know, be disruptive. And we invited them to come with us. And sure, why not? It was an exciting weekend. And we went for that weekend uh, to the, the farm. And after the weekend was over and we came back, we discovered that we accomplished almost nothing. It was a, a failed weekend. We, we tried to sit down over and over again and make plans, and it never really took hold. We never really achieved much progress in our, in our strategy. So I sat down the following week and tried to write up a report, analyzing why we weren't successful. And I wrote up what we called the Delaware Principles. And um, of those Delaware principles, two of them have stayed me well throughout the decades since. I'll share with you those two principles that, that survived the passage of time. The first thing I learned was that the two fellows who we invited to join us, who were very nice guys, totally pleasant, not, uh, not making fun of anything we were doing, not disruptive. But I learned that when you're trying to create momentum, people who do not contribute to the momentum automatically create a lag on the momentum. There's no such thing as dead weight. Either people are contributing or they're taking away from the excitement, from the inspiration, from the momentum. So that was the first thing I learned, that you'd be better off not having enough people, but having people who are all committed, than having a group that some committed, some not committed, just doesn't grab on, it doesn't create the excitement you need to achieve great things. The second of the principles, which is really why I'm sharing with you this entire uh, story. The second of the principles was I realized the reason we accomplished so little that weekend is that we were eight equals. We were all the same age range. We were all, you know, buddies with each other. And each one of us was so wary of being accused of trying to be bossy or dominant or taking over the discussion that we all backed off. And we discovered that you need someone to be in charge. 
it doesn't necessarily have to be the smartest person, the strongest person, the oldest person, or any other um, talent or, or criteria. It could be just take the eight names and put the names in a bowl and pick out one of the names and designate that person will quarterback the session. You always need somebody who is the quarterback. And because of that, through the years, whenever I was involved in programs, I would always try to ensure that there was someone designated to be the person in charge and responsible and owning whatever was going on. And when I am today involved in the Orthodox Union, it's exactly that. I mean, I, I, far, I contribute far less to the success of our various programs and creativity than most of the professional staff and many of the other volunteers. I just happen to be the name they picked out of the hats, and that's the role I'm playing. But it's not all that much because of uh, history or because of plans. God makes plans, and you just go along with the ride. When the opportunity came along, I grabbed it because it was such an honor. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. When um, when I was getting married, um, I, I actually when I was going out um, with my my soon-to-be wife, she didn't want to marry me. I mean, she understood that in the um, currency of of shidduchim, she was a really high-end quality shidduch candidate, and I was a real low-end shidduch candidate, and she could do much better than me. But I knew that she was really quality, so I was running after for like but six months. I was trying to convince her to marry me, and she was very intelligently saying I could do better. She didn't say it that way, but that was the message. <laughs> and finally, at the end, I pulled my ace out of my pocket, and I said to her, I said, don't you understand that I'm going to change world jewelry? This is your chance to be a partner in changing world jewelry. You're never going to find another guy who you're going to be able to marry, who you could partner with to do that. And she agreed. And that was the, the basis of our getting married. And at the time, I was in law school, and um, she said, well, if you want to do this big thing for world jewelry, then why are you going to law school? Why don't you go into community work? I said, look, you know, I'm not such a scholar, and I'm not such a disciplined student, and I'm never going to be a great rabbi, but I think as an activist, I could play a role. I could play a role that could be significant. So I'm going to law school and I'm going to pursue a legal career to create for myself a platform to have a basis to have a role in the community. And that's where we headed. And for 30, 33 years, that was my role. I was a, uh, a partner in a very large international law firm. I worked my way up. And all the while I was involved in different community activities and programs. I started a bunch of organizations along the way. I failed more, much more than I, than I succeeded. I, I figure I have about a 25% success rate on my community um, projects. But, but then about four years ago, the opportunity came for me to become president of the OU. And I was at the time 56, turning 57. And I told my wife about this opportunity. I said, you know, I'm really now at the height of my legal career. Uh, the late 50s is when you start really clicking in and all of your clients are starting to give you a significant amount of work. I was doing these multi-billion dollar transactions and finally really... Um, heading to the top of the of the field of law that I practice in. And I said, you know, it would really be better if I would defer a few years and wait till I'm closer to retirement and then take this position at the OU. And my wife looks at me and says, uh, hold on a second, I don't, I don't understand. You told me when we were going out that the only reason you're going to law school is to do, do community work. Now you're not going to do community work because of law? That doesn't make too much sense. And she was right, of course, and... I agreed to take the role that I'm playing now with the OU, and um, it's been an incredible uh, merit slush that I've enjoyed, and my wife and I have been 
one of the benefits of it is that we've never spent more time together. We've been traveling at least until March of this year, traveling around the country to communities and learning American Orthodox communities all over. And uh, it's been an incredible experience. Wow. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. I, <laughs> a lot to unpack there. I guess one, one thing I would take away is that if someone were to ask you why you are the president of the OU, it's because of something silly you said as a 20-something-year-old on a date. Is that, is that fair? Um, but yeah, the, I mean, I, I, one thing I just want to highlight is that when it comes to communal leadership, so often, you know, people turn to the rabbis and think that you have to be a rabbi to, to be able to make that change. But quite clearly, you, you understood that that doesn't have to follow that model. And on the contrary, it seems like there's much you could accomplish. And I would venture to say, from my perspective, sometimes much more you could accomplish without having that official title and as being a lawyer or fill in the blank, some other profession, there seems to be so much else they're able to, to accomplish. Um, well, I'll tell you, the, the, you use a term, and the term is used consistently, and that's leadership and the aspiration to be a leader in the community. Um, I have long disdained the term leadership. And we find that we use it very often in programmatic um, initiatives, young leadership, join the leadership group. And reality is that's, that's an ego thing, to call yourself an ego. And we try to use the weaker and, and less admirable parts of our personality to attract people to Jewish involvement by saying, come and be a leader. I don't want to be a leader. I don't want people to be leaders. I want people to be contributors. I want people to be activists. I want. I, I, I never aspire to be a leader. I aspire to have the greatest impact that I could have using whatever talents God gave me. And that certainly is not unique to rabbis. They have certain talents and they have certain information that they're able to impart and certain teaching and certain decisions that they're qualified to make that a lay person like myself is not. But we all are given by God very specific sets of capabilities and our job as a Jew is to identify who we are what we are and use that to maximize the impact we could have whatever our role is right and and I, and I love the fact that you're taking the ego out of leadership you know one thing that I recall years ago I, my brother uh, A.D. Motzen uh, is the national director of uh, political affairs for a good of Israel and he told me, as I mentioned in my introduction, when he took on his position, one of the first people he called was, of course, Rabbi Meishbein, uh, to, to pick his brain, to learn a little bit about, uh, you know, some perspectives. And, and I'm sure it was a longer conversation, but the one thing my brother shared with me after that conversation is one line that you told him, and that is that you can accomplish anything in the world if you don't take credit for it. If you can accomplish anything as long as you're willing to just not have your name on it, as long as you're willing to sit in the background and make sure that what needs to happen actually happens. So um, does that sound familiar? Is that something which it sounds, sounds very much along the lines of your philosophy? I actually phrased it for him, and I phrased it for many, many people, is you could succeed and do anything in community work if you're willing to do two things. That is, work harder than everybody else and give everybody else the credit. Okay. And then they let you do whatever you want. <laughs> That's right. Do whatever you want. I remember when I started off in the OU, I was 30 years old. I must have been 25 to 30 years younger than anybody else on the board. And I was always very intimidated. They're not going to let me do anything. I'm going to be irrelevant. And then I learned, well, every time something came up, if I volunteered to handle it and address it, I was very welcomed to take whatever role was available. Beautiful, beautiful. I actually ended up looking it up. Apparently, Harry Truman said a similar thing, but... I'll give you the credit for it when next time I say that line. Uh, so let me ask you the following question. What, what other advice, you know, I, and I'm not going to use the word leader, um, so I'm struggling to find the right term, but communal activists, people who want to help their community. If you could give some very general 
guidelines. You know, I've had many listeners over here, again, here on Zoom, here on Facebook. And, you know, one thing I've appreciated so much during this time is the, is the heart. Uh, so many people want to help in so many ways. And I, I've been on the receiving end of so many beautiful ideas and seen so many wonderful initiatives. What general advice would you give to people who want to become more involved in their community? Well, the, the first lesson that I encourage people uh, to engage in is based on a, a question. You know, there, there's a question that I remember asking for many, many decades, and that is that we're taught that every Jew has a unique role to play in the Jewish people. Everybody has their role. Everybody has their part of Torah. That's their piece of Torah. And everybody has their role in the community. And that begs the question, if I have a unique role, how am I supposed to know what that unique role is? I mean, it's one thing to tell me I should be doing what's special for me, but if I don't know what that is, how do you expect me to satisfy that expectation? And, and the Hasidic rabbis say that, in fact, God embeds within us the roadmap to understanding what our unique role should be. Because every person has two dimensions to their service of God. There's an external role that they play affecting the society, affecting their family, affecting their community. And there's a second role that we each play, and that is perfecting ourselves as individuals in our personal relationship with God. So the rabbis say that everybody has within themselves the roadmap for both their internal role that they should be playing that's unique to them and the external role that they should be playing that's unique to them. What are those roadmaps? The first roadmap is talent. Everybody has a very unique compilation of different talents. In some areas you're stronger, in some areas you're weaker, but no one is exactly the same. Everybody has a different footprint, a different fingerprint in their talent composition. And by studying that talent base, analyzing what your strengths are, that's your guide to what the role you're supposed to be playing to the rest of the world, to the outside world. And you have a second set of roadmaps, and that's your weaknesses. What are your vulnerabilities? What are your weaknesses? Some of us are more um, stingy, and some of us get angry easier, and some of us are jealous more often. Those are our weaknesses, and that, once again, is God's roadmap to us to tell us that's your personal level, that's your personal focus. So if the former, the talents, are your roadmap to what role you should be playing, the first piece of advice that we have to learn is to learn who we are. And one of the things that surprises me incredibly as I go through life and as I meet more and more people is how few of us really learn who we ourselves are. And we really don't study who we are. We don't study what we're capable of. We're not studying ourselves and our weaknesses and our strengths and what we're capable of doing. We just go along life and whatever comes our way, whatever's you know available, that's what we run after. But we really have to learn ourselves. So if you ask me what the first piece of advice and this is true for younger people, but it's never really completed, is to learn who you are. Now, one, one of the mistakes that people make when they talk about Jewish activism and contributing to a community is this image of involvement in major community organizations or local community organizations, whether it be an Orthodox Union, which is you know, over a thousand employees, or a local shul that has two people on its payroll, and you should be involved in your school, in your shul, in your chesed organization. That involvement is appropriate for certain types of people. Certain types of people work well in the context of organizations, in the, in the context of groups and organizing. Some of us don't fit that model and, and don't feel comfortable in that model. And may, many of us say, well, you know, I'm not an activist. I don't fit into organizations. I'm not comfortable in those contexts. Those aren't my skills even to play. And therefore I'm giving that up. I'm focusing on myself. But the reality is that the vast majority of the needs of the community 
are able to be employed on a one-on-one -on -one basis without any organizations, without any infrastructure, just on your own. I'll give you an example. You know, and this is something that was somewhat highlighted during the COVID experience, but it's certainly been the case since I've been aware of community functions and, and the profile of, of society. And that is, if I would line up the various pain and suffering that people are trying to cope with, the most prevalent pain that people have today, and I don't know, it may have been the same forever, I just wasn't around forever, but I know it's the case today. The most prevalent pain that people have is loneliness. And that's certainly true for the elderly who are alone, but it's similarly true for many of us at every stage of life. There's an enormous degree of loneliness in the American infrastructure, the way we live, the way we interact. And any one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, has the capability of visiting somebody, of picking up the phone and saying hello to somebody. How are you doing? How are you feeling? And those little things are Jewish activism. Those are significant roles that each one of us could be playing, regardless of who we are and where we're coming from and what our opportunities are. And when we talk about being involved, let's leave aside for a minute the massive organizational roles and focus on the needs of your neighbor, the needs of the people that you know, and frankly, perhaps more than ever, the needs of your family members. That's also Jewish activism. You know, when we talk about um, people involved in organizations, one of the areas that I struggle with mightily, and it comes up very, very often, is the role of young adults in Jewish community organizations. And every Jewish community organization, the OU is no exception, is very interested in engaging young, capable adults. And I'm very conflicted about this because to me, people who have children at home are not appropriate targets for Jewish community involvement. They should be targets for being good parents. And kids today need more parental attention than ever before. And frankly, in my perspective, that's Jewish activism. Being a proper father, being a proper mother, and frankly, mothers do a pretty good job. It's fathers that have a bigger people. But to be involved with your children on a day-to-day -day basis, that's Jewish activism. So when we talk about being involved, we have to have a much broader perspective on what those dimensions of involvement mean. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, uh, that that is a, a great, you know, as we're, we're starting to move towards uh, putting together our, ne our next board, are you making me uh, hesitate on bringing any younger person? You're absolutely right. We're so all. People are busy and their families are, are, there's so much to take care of. And especially during this time, you know, the people, uh, whether family living with you or family members who are all alone, uh, reaching out to those people, caring for those people is certainly something that, that needs to be on our radar. Uh, I do want to just highlight, as you just mentioned them, I, could, I couldn't not highlight two, two members of Arshul who on their own uh, decided to take up their own initiatives. You know, nothing to do with the Shul, but Estelle, who's here on this call, who literally went, was just calling people every single day. I'm not going to say how old you are, Estelle, but you're, you know, uh, thank God you are, you're doing great and just calling people on a daily basis, just making sure that people are doing well. Um, just reaching out those, trying to break through the, the walls of that isolation is just such a beautiful thing. And Helene and Scott, who have been dropping off beautiful little packages on their own, again, just letting one another know that we rec we see them, we see them. And that in of itself is so powerful. And, and that's, a great opportunity to really shift gears a little bit. But before I shift gears, I want to just uh, give everyone the opportunity. If you have any questions, 
um, to that you'd like to to pose to uh, Rav Meishbein. Uh, if you want to just text, not text me, but send me a private message uh, through Zoom. I'm sorry for those of you on Facebook. I can't really uh, see any messages right now. But on Zoom, just send me any private messages. And if we're able to, we'll get to some questions at the end if we have time. Um, but you mentioned the isolation of the elderly, you know, and you also mentioned the initiatives. You know, it's been it's been beautiful watching some of these incredible initiatives. I remember especially in the beginning when people didn't weren't sure how to leave their house, how to order online, and people were running around shopping for people. It seems like most people have caught their have gotten to a certain rhythm and figured out how to do things of that nature. But at the same time, the isolation is something which personally scares me, you know, anecdotally speaking to people. And, and some of some people are, thank God, just doing incredibly well and staying, staying healthy and staying engaged mentally and physically. But I'm also just anecdotally here, you know, and not anecdotally seeing with my own and hearing with my own eyes uh, and ears, people who are slowing down. It's hard to be on your own. It's hard to be isolated. Um, and for me, it's just raised the question in general of how we look at elders. And by we, I mean not just younger people looking at elders, but how elders look at themselves. What is that stage of life? What does it represent? And, and it just has caused me to wonder a lot about what is our tradition's perspective towards the elderly? How do we view this stage of life? Uh, you know, I think our Western society has an image that we're all too familiar with. Um, but if, maybe if you could perhaps speak to our tradition's perspective of, of aging and the elderly and what, what that looks like, what that experience is. Okay, I think you're, you're very wise in bifurcating it between the way non-elderly look at the elderly and how the elderly look at themselves. Um, I'd like to start with the latter because um, I think that's the more acute issue. When I was a kid, I used to be an avid fiction reader. I used to read enormous numbers of novels and um, I discovered over time that every good novel has a hero, a central figure, a central personality that the book has really revolved around, even if there are multiple characters. And if you look at it even closer, you'll find that a good novel always has that hero, that central character, having a defining moment. You know, and sometimes the defining moment is very blatant, and sometimes it's very subtle. So, for example, if you're reading a novel about the college quarterback hero who wins the champion game for the college bowl and the whole book is about the kid and he's a teenager and then he goes to college and then he tries out for the team and then he makes the team and then he wins this championship and then the rest of the book is how a champion quarterback lives the rest of his life but that moment is the defining moment of that person's life and i think as a practical matter we all have defining moments we all have a moment in our life that that's what it's really all about and my impression is that someone who is a, an Oven Hashem, someone who really appreciates their responsibility as an Orthodox Jew, is someone who lives their life, whether they're 20 or 60 or 90, with the conviction that their defining moment has not yet occurred. It's always ahead of us. Everything that we've done until that moment in time is preparing us for events that may occur in the future. Now, may, they may never happen. I'm not, and, we, never, never, may, we may never even know when that defining moment actually occurred or will occur. But it's a way of life. It's a way of looking at life. Because once you look at life as you being on the other side of your defining moment, then you're really giving up the game. And you're really not engaging in all of the roles and the gifts that God is giving us on a daily basis to maximize who we are. 
So one of the failings that we allow our elderly to do is to look at their lives as retrospective. As what I've done, I've done. I'm just now having memories and trying to have some comfort and nachas from all that I've accomplished until now. And of course, nachas is very important and very deserved. But you can never look at life as having happened already. And we need to create a culture in which those who are reaching different stages in life are appreciating that there is an avoda, there is a role in the service of God that's unique to every stage of life. And you never had a chance to play that role before. I wrote an article a number of, uh, like a year and a half ago, about parenting. And as I referenced earlier, in my mind, being a parent is the most important role that those of us who are blessed with children get to play. Those of us who don't have children need to find others that we're able to nurture and, and give over our wisdom and our love to, because that's the role of an Orthodox Jew is to give love, to give of our resources and our, of our wisdom. So I went through a whole analysis of the different stages of childhood, and then I got to the fact that one of the roles that a person has as their children become adults is the ability to withdraw and allow your grown-up children, your adult children, to develop the independence that they need to maximize who they are. And very often we find parents who, who don't allow their children to do that, who, who, who are claustrophobic in their attention and their advice. You know, I once had a... Uh, a, a dispute with a uh, person a few years older than me in Shul on a Friday night who came over to me to say, I'm going to talk to my son. I'm very upset with the way he's dealing with his daughter and whatever the, the incident was. And I said, well, who are you to tell that to your son? He goes, it's my granddaughter. I have a right to tell my son what should be about my granddaughter. I said, let me tell you what I've learned. What I've learned is that when I, you tell your children, adult children, what to do, they never ask you. They never follow. They never do what you tell them to do. But when they come and ask you for advice, they always listen to your advice. But if you tell them what to do, they won't come and ask you for advice. So you're making a tremendous strategic mistake. And I went through the different stages. And then I said, well, you know, if that's the case, if the role of the parent of adult children is to withdraw, then what's your role as a parent? Does that mean parenting concludes once your child hits 30 or 40 or 50 or 60? You know, Baruch Hashem, thank God we're living... Many of us are living much older than used to be the case. We're living into our 80s and 90s, healthy and, 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 and actually able to do significant things, which when I was a child, that really wasn't even a, a, a reality that we observed in our friends, parents, and grandparents at that stage. We are. So it's not uncommon for people to have children who are in their 60s and certainly in their 50s. So what's the role of a parent? Does that mean parenting is merely a temporary role? And I began to muse about it a lot like what is the role of the parent of an older adult child and i began to realize that that role of a parent never concludes the role of a parent is a lifelong role and when you're 80 your role as a parent is to teach your child how to be an 80 year old because that's who they're going to learn how to be an 80 year old for when they get to 80 and how to be a 90 year old and that's a role that we continually have to play throughout our lives because every stage in life is a new opportunity to be a person at that stage in life and we need to embrace it and we need to understand it and study it and say well how could i use this stage in life how could i use this role that i'm being given by god this opportunity to maximize who i am and my capability and my impact so you know we talked about earlier the difference between western society and and, and torah view and, and worldview in western society as you alluded to before we tend to marginalize older people 
they get less attention, they get less respect. Uh, what do they know? They're, they're from, from the past. In Judaism, we look at the world exactly the opposite. Right? There's an affirmative halacha. It's not just a customs halacha. That when a 70-plus-year-old walks into a room, we get up, we stand. If they say potakum in front of an elderly person, we get up. We give respect. We have an affirmative duty to respect the elderly. And that's not just to make people feel good. It's an appreciation that the compilation of our lives makes us into different people. You know, who are we as a, a human being? You know, how do we define ourselves? You know, when you're a kid, you begin to think, well, who am I really? Who am I? And what is, what is, what defines me? Is it my name? Is it the way I look? Is it my job? Which is a tremendously dangerous thing that people today very often succumb to. When we think about it, what we really are is the compilation, compilation of our choices. That's who we are. The uniqueness of the human being is the ability to make choices, to make choices, to make decisions. And the older we are, the more decisions we've made, and hopefully the more right, correct decisions we've made. So a person who's made decisions for 30 years is nothing compared to a person who's made decisions for 60 years or 80 years. They're just a holier person. They're a more substantive person. And that's something that we have to respect and we have to look up to. You know, we go to older people for advice. You know, I, I, one of the programs that the uh, the OU has embarked on is a uh, interesting program. We had a whole uh, challenge this summer because very often uh, we discovered back in April, May, we began to become very concerned about high school students' summers. Many of the sleepaway camps were closed. Many of the jobs that were being offered or internships that were being anticipated were being canceled. And we were worried about the thousands upon thousands of high school students who would be left this summer without anything productive to do. So we started a program called Project Community 20, Project Community for the year 2020. And what we tried to do this summer is to take high school students and amalgamate their time between recreational social opportunities, all obviously within the context of their local health guidelines, but also introduce to them opportunities to help others, to be contributing to others. And the range of roles that we've been ident identifying and designated has been incredible. I mean, we have uh, various programs that are physical labor type things, such as we, we have groups of teens planting um, flowers and, and gardening in front of shoals and schools. We have uh, groups painting um, uh, public chairs at bus stops. And then we have IAFAD, which is a, our program for develop, developmentally disabled young adults and teenagers, where we have high school students spending time with the de developmentally disabled students and developing relationships and entertaining them and spending time with them and giving their families a respite from the 24-7 care that they've been having to give to these of their family members. And one of the areas of our programming is a program we call Perfect Pair, which is a recognition that older members of our community have enormous wisdom, have legacies that they've accumulated throughout their lives, experiences that they've had, understandings that they've, that they've accumulated. And what we're doing is we're pairing high school students with individual older members of the community to develop relationships between the two of them and having the high school student assist the older person in developing a legacy video to put together the lessons, a key lessons that they could trans transmit to the next generation, whether it be the kid who is the SESY or OU designated high school student, or whether it be for the elderly's own family to leave a oral legacy, because that's the wisdom that is captured within all of us as we get older and we can't let it be squandered. 
we have to be able to learn from our, each other. And as we get older and as we have more experience, you know, there, there's a, a phrase, there's no fool like an old fool. Well, there's no wise person like an old wise person. And we have to appreciate that as younger people towards the elderly. But I think the greater challenge is for the elderly to recognize the contribution that they have and available to be made. Right. And, and that comes in, in so many ways. It comes in, as, as you mentioned before, you know, an, an elder person who's no longer working on a full-time basis, the opportunity they have to befriend others, to uh, uh, alleviate loneliness of others, to be involved in all kinds of chesed, of benevolence activities. And even with regard to learning Torah, you know, as, as Orthodox Jews, we all appreciate that Torah study is critical to our developing a relationship with God. But most of us, as we go through our adult years, we are so inundated with demands on our time, whether it be bringing up our children, whether it be uh, fostering our careers or our businesses, that we don't really have enough time to be delving into the wisdom of the Torah on a level that we really would like to. And as people begin to slow down in their jobs and enter retirement and stop having to worry about children on a day-to-day -day basis, stop having to worry about their jobs as intensely or at all, it's an opportunity to start catching up on all that Torah study that they really didn't have a time to learn throughout their lives. Now, 30 years ago, it would be very hard for me to make that suggestion because the people who don't have the skill set would find such a barrier to entry into Torah study, you know, to pick up a Talmud, to pick up a, even a Chumash, when you don't understand Hebrew fluently, and you pick up a, a commentary on the Torah that you really don't understand, okay, why I should be learning Torah, but I don't have the cool tools, I don't have the capacity. Today, that's not at all the case in any way, shape, or form. The resources available today, both in audio and in video and in English books, makes Torah accessible to every one of us, every one of us, at every age, regardless of our background, regardless of a skill set that we've been, been able to develop. And when people have now time in their older years to not utilize at least part of it, to capture the Torah that's available to them and learn a greater understanding of God, it's a shame, it's a tragedy. But I think there, it's much more about how older people look at themselves and the significance of their lives than it is how younger people view them. Wow. So thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that that paradigm shift, you know, and I, it sounds like, you know, most many people at some stage start looking, like you said, only retrospectively. And that's the way they're looking at their entire life right now, always looking backwards in that rear view mirror as to the things that they experience and instead to have that rather idealistic idea of never, I, I'm not necessarily, I haven't achieved what I have to achieve just yet. Um, and I think that's such a, a powerful, powerful shift in, in perspective. Um, you know, I'll, I'll share a quick story with, with, uh, with everyone here, just of someone, I, I may have shared this with, with some of you before, a story about my grandfather, would have been his 99th birthday today. Uh, he passed away when he was uh, 93. So six years ago, and he um, he kind of you know when when he retired, it was very hard for him. It was very very challenging uh, to not have his regular role, and uh, you know eventually he moved to New York to to an assisted living home, and he was miserable there. He wasn't in his hometown of Baltimore. Some of you I think may have known him, and uh, he was there. He was he was truly truly miserable and just declining because he wasn't giving. He wasn't extending himself. And finally, he, with much encouragement from his, from his family, decided to start a little Shabbos group. Uh, Shabbos meal is a kosher institution, a kosher, kosher establishment, but they didn't really have any Shabbos flavor. And so he would lead a song, he would say Kiddush, he would say a Dvar Torah. 
and they kind of they said sure we'll accommodate they gave him a table in the corner uh two people joined him the first shabbos and within a few weeks and a few months he eventually had 60 or 70 people joining him every single shabbos to the point that my grandfather was afraid i invited him to join us back in baltimore for a shabbos he didn't want to leave because who would take his role who would be able to lead that shabbos experience and he spent the entire week preparing so that would be the most beautiful he made smiro sheets and prepared you know throughout the week preparing the right vartor for the crowd many of them uh without the right backgrounds and he became a different person he he you know he, he just transformed to a to a whole different individual because of the fact that he was he was giving he was he became he was just he, he was extending himself and became a totally different person and it really speaks to 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 your perspective instead of looking back he was now looking forward to how he was going to contribute I, I very much love the examples you gave um, you know and, and and I don't know if you have any more examples because I think it's so important to to plug this idea in practically uh, you know the idea of just reaching out to others on a one to one basis the idea of Torah study the idea of extending our knowledge base and really just, I think, the common denominator being extending ourselves, becoming a different person, whether by giving chesed, learning more, um, and any other practical examples of how people could do this on, on a very practical level. Well, I, I don't know the answer to how to do it, because I'm not there yet. I know what I aspire to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas that is a, a very challenging area of orthodoxy and frankly, in the COVID era, it has become for some of us easier and for some of us more difficult. And that's the area of prayer. Now, in some ways, prayer is the most intimate relationship opportunity we have with God. And most of us find prayer very challenging. And uh, it's intimidating. And we open up a sitter, a prayer book, and we try to read the words. If we don't understand them, we may venture to the English slide, but it doesn't really touch us. And we try and we struggle and we look for different techniques to try to engage in, in, in prayer properly. And when you're alone, for some of us, we're hearing around the country that some people are finding prayer in isolation to be more significant for them and more meaningful. But for many, many, it's less. There's less opportunity for song. There's less opportunity for the group energy that comes through praying in a synagogue with a, with a community. But one of my speculations, and I've spoken to many older people about it, is that when you're older, when you're reaching your 80s and 90s, the opportunity to make prayer significant is incredible. You know, the, the amount of noise in your life has been reduced. The amount of distractions have been reduced. The accumulation of experience has been so much more intensified that you can start st- talking to God in a significant way without the pressures that younger people have in running to school or they're running to work or running to change a diaper and be able to spend time talking to God. And I'm speculating, and it's something that the OU we talk about exploring in a number of different areas of, of older community members, both in Torah learning and well, as well as engagement and act- activism, but also in prayer to figure out methodologies and exercises to provide a guideline for how to make prayer more significant as you get older in life and take advantage of the opportunity and the maturity that comes with age to connect to God in a significant way. Wow. That is, uh, yeah, wow. I, I'd love to hear more about that as that develops. And I also, I certainly plan on following up with uh, our local uh, um, director for the Orthodox Union, Rabbi Schaffer, to hear more about this initiative they mentioned earlier. I would love to bring that to our community, uh, pairing teens together with with uh, seniors. And I, I, it, sounds, it sounds fabulous. It really, really does. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of running low on time. So maybe I'm just going to leave off with, 
one question, maybe going back to uh, something we started off with, really just understanding how you became you, and just hopefully we could uh, maybe glean some lessons. Uh, you mentioned one of the inspirations in your life, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, uh, who I, who it seems like so many leaders in our Jewish community have, were, were touched and inspired and, and, and guided by him. He had this broad vision um, of achrayas, the sense of responsibility, like you said, not just for oneself, but for the world at large, and he somehow was able to touch so many with that, with that message. Um, if you could just share with us, maybe, again, we we're, we're, we're have to wrap up over here, but maybe just one other role model of yours that influenced you, and if you could explain to us how and why they influenced you. Okay, let me, let me, I'll, I'll try to be quick, but let me touch on two of them. Uh, let me first talk about my father, Allah Shalom. And my father's role as a father was playing what I view as one of the most critical roles that a parent plays, and that is empowering their children. You know, very often... One of the rabbis who I spent a lot of time with when I was when I was younger, and much less though today, is a rabbi in Milwaukee. His name is Rabbi Michal Tversky. And Rabbi Tversky used to tell us. I used to go to Milwaukee in the summers when I was a teenager and young adult to study with him. And um, one of the things he observed was that in the Musar Svarim, in the books of of ethics and and behavior, they often attribute most of people's failings to ego, to hubris, to gaiva. He says, you know, in America today, most of our failings are not because of hubris. Most of our failings are because of our modesty. And we begin to look at ourselves as being so insignificant and so incapable that what could be expected of us? What role could we possibly play? And we need to overcome that. One of the things that my father helped me do over the years was embedded me a sense of confidence, a sense of aspiration that I may fail, I may succeed, but why not go for it? Why not try to accomplish things? And that is what I think to be one of the key roles that a parent has to play, is to empower their children. Uh, you know, this concept of, uh, let's be realistic, don't be overreaching. Okay, there is a dimension for that. But a much greater role is to empower a child. You know what you can accomplish? Reach for the stars. Try to do more than you think you can. And that's what life is, 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 is capable of, of providing for you. But the second person I wanted to highlight is very interesting. Is also an area of Israel personality who's no longer alive, and that's Rabbi Herman Neuberger. Uh, Rabbi Neuberger, as many of you or some of you may be aware, was the executive director of Ner Israel for many decades. And I spent a lot of time with him. I was a, I was a study partner of, a, of, one, of, his, of a, one of his sons for a couple of years, my last couple of years in yeshiva. I spent a lot of time in their home, and I learned a lot from him. And one of the reasons that he was such an important model for me is that many guys go through the yeshiva system and look at the Rosh Yeshiva, the Torah giants, as the models of impact on the community. And they say to themselves, listen, I'm not a Torah scholar. I don't know the entirety of the Talmud. I'm never going to be this great leader because I don't have that skill. I don't have that scholarship. Rabbi Neuberger was a Talmachacham. He certainly was a, a, a well-educated Jew, but he wasn't a Rosh Yeshiva. He wasn't a great scholar who was going to write books and and issue decrees or, or, or halachic decisives. He was a dedicated Jew who believed in the power of the Jewish community, a commitment to the Jewish community. And for those of us like myself, who are not gonna be rabbis, who are not gonna be great scholars, to have a model of someone whose commitment to the Jewish community and the impact on the Jewish community was so enormous, despite not being great scholars, gave us a model that impact, effectiveness, on the community is not restricted to great rabbis. 
Certainly we rely on great rabbis, but it's not their exclusive domain. Each one of us could play a role if we tap into who we are. Wow. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing from... I, 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 I'm jealous of the exposure you had to such great people, Rav Michal Tversky. Uh, you should be well. Uh, you know, I, I had the chance to meet very briefly, um, and just uh, clearly, uh, the fact that you were there for many summers, I'm sure that had an incredible impact, and, and, and uh, the great ones of Nair Israel, you know, as a Nair Israel graduate myself, uh, I, I, I came, unfortunately, after Rav Yaakov Weinberg was no longer living, and it was really the last years of Rav Herman Neuberger's life, uh, but it is uh, heartening to hear from people who were inspired by them and guided by them, and, and, and they created a model, a model whether it's through rabbinic models or just a, a model of what being a great person could actually be. So, you know, I, I don't actually, I haven't taken notes doing something in a long time, but I actually took notes during this entire, uh, during, this, uh, during this talk. And I, I'm just going to, for myself, just summarize some of the, the salient points, uh, some of the, the highlights of, of the ideas that, that I really took out of it that I just want to make sure we all walk away with. And, and, and that is, maybe just go back to, to where this began. You, you mentioned some, some beautiful advice that you gave to your children, uh, the notion that uh, you, you, have, you have goals, but ultimately their direction. And I think that's such important advice, especially during this time. You know, I think all of us, I, I, you know, the amount of goals that I had and specific things that I plan, personally planned on accomplishing during these months, and it's just, it's, it's, it's a big joke because obviously for all of us, none of the goals that we had during this time uh, were able to be accomplished, but it, it's a direction, and now we find ourselves in a situation and our role as, as Jews, as believing Jews, is to say that this is the situation I need to be in and need to accomplish, and I think it's such a healthy perspective to take all the time, but especially now, and to really stop thinking about how we're not in the right situation, but instead to embrace the situation and recognize as an Oved Hashem, as someone who serves God, we serve God in every situation, regardless of what that situation is. So we have to, we have to make the most of that, of that situation. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that you stepped up as this high school student. You never explained, and I never asked you why and what pr- prompted you to doing so, but hearing a little bit about your father and the fact that he instilled with you, within you this incredible, uh, you know, uh, self-esteem, you know, confidence in, in yourself, the ability to just to just do. I, I'm sure that had a big role at that stage. Uh, I'm sure many of your friends were. I don't know. I don't know what high school students do when there is uh, the Yom Kippur War breaks out. They 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 hear about the news, uh, but you decided to do something about it. And clearly, you had a role model who believed in you and the importance of having such such role models. Um, another another idea again, just wanted to highlight, and, and that is that uh, the the goal is. To the first step, it would seem to to really be knowing what our role is is to know ourselves and and leadership or activism is really about it starts with an incredible amount of self awareness. This notion of really understanding yourself, understanding your skills, understanding what settings you work and don't work in, and then using that as a springboard to figure out where you fit, what your puzzle piece actually is, and, and really wanted to go back to that last piece, especially as it comes to the elderly. Um, you know, we are the sum total, as you said, of our choices, and by definition, if you've been around longer, you've made more choices. You are a richer person. You have much more uh, life to, to, that you've experienced and, and, have, and have rode through, and therefore there is something worth respecting, but it's that paradigm shift that I think we all need to take, regardless of age, this idea that there's never the retrospective. I think all of us, regardless of our life stage, we all have something we're looking back on, um, and, and we're never there. There's never the sense of looking back, uh, and, and actually on the contrary, we're constantly looking forward to try to figure out what that next thing is, regardless of our age. There's, there's endless opportunities, and so thank you for sharing all these essential lessons. There's so much more. I apologize. I don't write fast enough. But I, I, I just wanted to thank 
uh, Ramosha Bain for taking the time. This is a very busy time uh, for the community at large. The Orthodox Union is, is, is working tirelessly. I'm getting their daily emails, all the initiatives that they're working on and bending over backwards to make sure that the community's needs are met. I'm sure you have not slept in quite some time. Um, and so really, we, we so, so deeply appreciate it. We're, we're proud of our affiliation with Orthodox Union as an as a OU shul. And we just really appreciate all that you're doing as an individual, as an institution, and especially for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us. So thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, we wish you Hatzlacha, much success in all that you do. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi, and thank you to your wonderful congregation for spending time with me. Thank you. Have a good evening, everyone. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Take care, everyone.